0: Welcome to the audio channel of the Reverend Dr. C.H.E. Sadoffel. His purpose is to preach Christ, teach the Bible, and make disciples. Now let us open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to him proclaim the Word of God. Church, I would invite the congregation to stand and please turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Please be seated. So church, what I would like the congregation to consider this morning is a question. And that question is, what is Christmas really about? When you get to the core of it, what stands at the crux of the Christmas holiday? That word Christmas, the first few letters, spells out Christ. christ must. But we live in a day and age... Where you can do Christmas really, really good. You can go all into the Christmas holiday, but not really bother with Jesus Christ. When people are asked, what's Christmas really about? Some may say tradition. Some may say food, fellowship, friends, and family. But the central point I would like to press upon your hearts this morning is this. What is Christmas really about? Christmas is really about divine accomplishment. It's what God has already achieved. There is nothing whatsoever man-made or human-achieved about the Christmas story. 2,000 years ago, the divine hand moved through the fabric of reality and brought about the most significant event in human history, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High. Christmas celebrates the day when the God-man was born. Last year around the holidays in the medical office where I work we were all having a very meaningful, engaging conversation about what the holidays mean to us. And it was a great conversation that could only happen in and around New York City because you had me, the Christian, you had the medical assistant who was Muslim. You had an x-ray tech who was atheist agnostic, and you had a receptionist who was undecided. And we were all talking about what the holidays mean to us, and then it was my turn, and I broke down the Christmas story, and then an x-ray tech who I adore because she was using the mind. Remember, she was an atheist agnostic, but she was using the the mind that God gave her. She was using the ration, the reason, the insight that God gave to her, even though she was an atheist. And she said, Dr. Sadafal, if God was born, what was he doing all the time before? And I said, that question is brilliant. It's brilliant because you're thinking, you're using your mind, you're using reason. And as the joy filled my heart, I looked at her and said, D, 2,000 years ago was when God took the form, when he assumed his humanity. But God didn't come into existence When Jesus Christ was born. Because God always existed from the very beginning. Nothing made him. Nothing created him. He simply always is present tense. And 2,000 years ago, God, remaining what he was, God, became a man. And is now the God-man forever. Now you may say, that sounds weird, that sounds strange, that sounds otherworldly, exactly because the Christmas story is about divine accomplishment. Only what God can do. Now our theme verses come from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33. Let's set the stage for the story. The events happen in Judea which is modern-day Israel. These events transpired when a real historical person called Herod was the king of Judea. Now our text starts. Verse 26. Now in the sixth month. Stop. The sixth month of what? The sixth month of Elizabeth being pregnant. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin. How she got pregnant was the Christmas sermon for next year. But let's move on. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Galilee was the region. Nazareth was the city. Like New York State is the region, New York City is the city. But here's here's the catch. In Greek, there's only one word for city. There's no word for small town or small hamlet. So when the text calls Nazareth a city, it's being very kind. Back then... Nazareth was a rinky-dink town way out of the way that no one ever cared about. And if you ever go to Israel, you'll see there's a big plain where the major trade routes would go. And then way over there, over a hill, way out of everyone's way, that's where Nazareth was. And I say all that to tell you that the announcement that the Messiah, that Jesus would be born, came to a nobody, Mary, in the middle of nowhere, in a city that no one bothered with. And twice in verse 27, Luke tells us that Mary was a virgin. That Mary never had intercourse with the man, but in spite of that fact, Mary would be overshadowed by God and now conceive a baby boy in her womb. And that, beloved, is divine accomplishment. That, beloved, is divine power turning nothing, turning a womb that is empty and devoid of life into a cradle of life. And the reason why the birth of the Messiah came to a no one off the beaten track in the middle of nowhere is God was stacking the odds against himself. He loves doing that. So when he brings things to pass, you know precisely and exactly it wasn't men who did anything. It was divine accomplishment. Verse 28, and coming in, The angel Gabriel said to Mary, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But Mary was perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Mary was surprised not because it was strange back then for a man to speak to a woman. Mary was surprised because it's never a common thing for an angel to greet anybody. And the angel said, greetings favored one, you have found favor with God. A person is said not to have found favor when they sought after it. Mary, being a virgin, was not in her prayer closet saying, Lord, please, although I'm a virgin, please make me pregnant. Mary wasn't searching after. She wasn't working towards divine favor. But that phrase, found favor, applies to the situation where someone is freely offered a gift. It specifically means when a superior extends a favor to a inferior. To have found favor is not an expression of virtue, it's an expression, beloved, of grace, of unmerited favor. And Mary was perplexed as to why God would show her favor now here's a secret you know your relationship with God has really gotten real when you come to the pressing realization that the grace of God does not make any sense when you know who God is when you know that he owes no one anything, when you know that he is perfect and holy and majestic and true, and you look at God and look at yourself and say, God, you chose to save me. God, you chose to open my eyes. God, you chose to turn my heart so that now I can call upon the name of Jesus Christ and have faith in the Messiah, Lord God, I'm perplexed because I don't deserve this. And the point is exactly, no one deserves God's grace. The grace of God is perplexing and doesn't make sense any sense. And the grace of God, the thing that turns a stony heart into a warm one, is when a sinner looks at the beauty of God and sees him freely pouring out his love and grace onto a person who doesn't deserve it. That turns their heart, that warms their heart, and compels them to cast their eyes upon the Most High and to glorify God Almighty. Beloved, grace does not make any sense because if grace did make any sense, it wouldn't be grace. It would be justice. And the only one who can accomplish grace, who can freely extend his favor to us, is God Almighty, divine accomplishment. The angel told Mary, Do not be afraid. For you have found favor with God. And anyone who's been reading their Bible up to this point knows when God visits someone, you ought to have reason to be afraid. Mary could have wondered, is this a visit like Sodom and Gomorrah? Is this a visit like God visiting the nation of Egypt and raining down plagues? Is this a visit when God brings a sword in his hand? But the angel says, Mary, fear not. He didn't come as a messenger of war. He didn't come as a messenger to bring news of God's wrath. He brought a message of comfort. He said, Mary, do not be afraid because God has found favor with you and the blessed news is this church when you have found favor with God that is a favor that lasts for eternity you can work your entire life trying to find favor with men you can work your entire life trying to please the crowd but all you need to do is to slip up once All you need to do is to have one negative thing happen and all of that favor in the blink of an eye evaporates. But God is better than all of that. God does not change his mind. God is eternal. And when he decides to show someone grace and you have found favor in his eyes, that is a favor that will last from now to eternity future. Because when God does it, beloved, it is done. Divine accomplishment. Verse 31 says, Gabriel continues. He says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Stop. Wait a minute. Mary was a virgin. How is it that a virgin can conceive and bring forth a son? And when we use our natural minds, this doesn't make any sense. Because we're natural human beings. We're created. We have to follow rules. In the world in which we live, the only way a baby comes about is if a man knows a woman nine months later, here you have the baby. We can't do it any other way because we are designed creatures that must follow natural rules. But guess what? God made everything. He's above the rules. He transcends the rules. The rules of DNA biology and a zygote developing do not apply to God. Therefore, if he says the virgin shall be pregnant, the virgin will be pregnant. Mary was a virgin, meaning she didn't do anything. And Jesus was conceived by divine accomplishment. Realize something, church. Mary didn't even get to name the baby. The angel said, you're going to name... She may have said, I want to name him Moshi or Avi or Bob. No, the angel told her, you shall call him Jesus. And Jesus comes from a Hebrew word, Yeshua, which means God is salvation. Every time you say Jesus, 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 you are saying God saves, God saves, God saves. God is a saving God. It's embedded in his very name. That is why he incarnated in the first place, not to condemn man, but to save him. And God had to be a saving God because if God didn't save you, no one else could and no one else would. Divine accomplishment. Now, the angel Gabriel, he becomes a prophet. Now he becomes prophesying into the future. And he begins telling Mary who this baby Jesus will be. He casts his eyes way into the future using the message God gave him and tells Mary five things that this baby Jesus will be. Verse 31. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High and... The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The first thing Gabriel says is, He will be great. Jesus will be great. Now, let's be honest. There were a few times in Christ's life he didn't seem all that great. Using a natural eye, looking at a baby in a manger amongst filthy animals, that seemed kind of not so great. When Jesus was ran out of town by his fellow Jews whom he came to save, didn't seem so great. When Jesus was sold for 30 shekels of silver, didn't seem so great. When the Jews said crucify him, didn't seem so great. When the Romans nailed him to a cross and treated him like a common criminal, didn't seem so great. But on that cross, Jesus was pierced for our iniquities And wounded for our transgressions. And three days later, he resurrected. He rose from the dead. The Jews tried to be as great as they could. Let's kill the blasphemer. The Romans said, let's eliminate this man who's a threat to the state. But who demonstrated he was greater than both the Jews and the Romans? Jesus Christ did. He will be great. Christ is greater than anything you or I can ever imagine. He is great not because he's Lord of the Jews. He's great not because he's Lord of Israel. He is great because Christos kurios. He is Lord of everything. In other words, Jesus Christ is great. Realize Jesus is great just as a function of who he is. If a human being wants to be great, they have to do something. They have to get a degree. They have to make money. They have to solve something. They have to change the world. But Jesus Christ, as a function of being who he is, is simply great. He's the only one who is fully God and fully man in one person. He is holy. He is just. He is true. He's the Savior of all mankind. Hence. He is great. He is great on earth in the hearts of all of his children. Jesus is even great in heaven. Do you know what it says in Revelation 4? The Apostle John looks in heaven. The Apostle John looks in heaven. In heaven, an angel says, Who is worthy to er open the scroll? And in heaven... There was only one great enough to open the scroll, the Lamb who was slain, Jesus Christ. He is great. He is great in what he is. He's a prophet. He's the final revelation of God to humankind. He is great in that he is a priest as he holds the staff in his hand to mediate for his people. He is great because he is a king. That holds the scepter in his hand, for he will one day inhabit his earthly kingdom. He is great, beloved, in what Jesus Christ has done, what he, God, has already accomplished. Jesus set his people free. We have to understand something. If Jesus Christ did not exist... Universalism would be true. If Jesus Christ did not exist, everyone would go to the same place when we die. Everyone would walk through the door of death and there'd be one button in the elevator of eternity. It will go down. And that place is not nice. There's hopelessness. There's despair, there's torment, there's confusion, there's wrath, there's judgment, there's pain. So when I said Jesus is great because he set his people free, he set us free from sin and death. Where death no longer has no sting. Where now there is no longer any condemnation. But he he not only set us free from death. He set us free from the bond chains of sin so that now in everyday life here on earth, we are free to serve our great Redeemer. Jesus is great in what he is doing actively right here, right now. Realize something. Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross but is now applying it every minute of every day. Jesus didn't save you and then leave you alone. After he saves you, he sends the Holy Spirit, who each and every day matures you, grows you, sanctifies you, make you more holy, so now you can be the lowercase l light to everyone else around you who hasn't met the great Jesus yet. Jesus will be great because he will be called Son of the Most High. Son here does not mean son as you and I talk about a son. Son here in Greek means the same nature of or the same essence as the Most High is God. So Jesus, in that he will be called Son of the Most High, means he will be God in the flesh because he is God in the flesh. And the Most High leaves no room for doubt. God who is the Most High, that is from a Hebrew word, Yahweh Elyon which means the supreme source of power, authority, and sovereignty in the universe. Jesus is supreme, simply as a function of who he is. Now, there's a doctrine in the New Testament called adoption, which means when a man or a woman becomes saved, they are now called an honorary son or daughter in the family of God. God adopts you into his family, but God actually has to do something. He has to to extend his divine hand to bring one of us into his family. In order for me to be a son, God had to act and work on me, but guess what? Jesus is a son just as a function of being. Jesus always was a son, always is a son, always shall be a son. And Jesus is special in that he's not only son of the Most High, fully God, he would also be the son of Mary, fully human, and therefore fully God and fully human in one person. And you maybe ask yourself, that sounds like something strange. That sounds like something otherworldly. That sounds like something supernatural. To which I would respond exactly because it's only something that God could accomplish. The angel Gabriel says, And the Lord God will give Jesus the throne of his father David. No one's going to vote Jesus in. The electoral college is not going to cast any votes. There's not going to be a recount. When Jesus assumes the throne, it's going to be handed over to him by divine accomplishment. Beloved, Jesus is a savior, yes, but he also came to fulfill all the promises that God made to Israel. Jesus right now is enthroned in heaven. He is sitting down on a heavenly throne. But when this angel says that Jesus will inherit the throne of his father, David, David was a man. David was a human being. David's throne is not in heaven. David's throne is right here on earth. So what this angel is telling Mary, this angel is now looking way, way, way into the future. After Jesus comes back, where the king who is now seated in heaven will step down and assume his seat, the rightful place on the throne here on earth. The next thing the angel tells Mary is that he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. The house of Jacob is a house of promise. It is not a house of bloodlines. The house of Jacob has nothing to do if your daddy was a preacher if your mommy is really religious, if your mother was a Jew. The house of Jacob has nothing to do with bloodlines. Do you know why? Because bloodlines don't last. People fall. Families pass away. The house of Jacob is built on a spiritual promise made by a spiritual God because the promises of an eternal God last forever. And as Galatians 3 tells us, when you in this day and age profess faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, you are now a member of the house of Jacob, a house which will span the test of time. The last thing the angel tells Mary is that the Son of the Most High, His kingdom will have no end. Divine accomplishment means that whatever God accomplishes, it stands forever. It will have no end. And God never ultimately has right now in mind. God always has eternity in mind. He has an eternal outlook. When you apply to school or when you apply to a new job, they always ask you, What's your permanent address? But here's the irony. In life, your permanent address can change. God is concerned with your really permanent address. Your really permanent address is the address that you inherit and you have it forever. It's really permanent. Because in God's outlook, eternity always matters more than the present. That is why God sent his son to bear the good news. God didn't send you a text message. He didn't send an angel. He didn't do a miraculous work in the sky and then leave you alone. God sent God to tell you about the kingdom of God because he's really concerned about your really permanent address. And when we look ahead to the life and public ministry of Jesus Christ, we see it's, it's saturated with divine accomplishment. God came to do God's work to save God's people according to God's plan so that they would spend eternity in the kingdom of God. And God's goal in all of that... Was the glory of God. Now I'll close by saying this. When God came and Jesus became a man and visited us the first time, he came in love, he came in a manger, he came as a suffering servant. He came as one who was rejected. He came as one who was emulated. He came as one who ultimately was sentenced to death here in this world. But Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's not coming in low, he's coming in high. He's coming in unquestionably high, where the entire world will literally look up way high and see who Jesus Christ really is. And it's so critically important to know, to understand who Jesus Christ is, because when he comes back, the relationship that you had with him at that very moment will be the relationship you have for eternity. Either you love him, adore him, and want to be with him forever, or you get exactly what you want and get to spend eternity without him in your really permanent address. I want you to imagine, church, what will be on that day when the second coming where the entire world, everyone will look up, the thunders will crash, the trumpets will sound, the heavens open up, and there behold, the one on the white horse with a horde of heavenly armies behind him as the king comes back triumphantly, high, in glory, ready to assume the kingdom of earth. This is what Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16 says. The Apostle John sees the future and says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness... He judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That sounds pretty high to me. From our perspective, this is something that's going to happen in the future. But from God's perspective, this is already done. This is already accomplished. He has already extended his divine hand and set to rest these events here. Now, after I've said over and over again this morning what God has accomplished, what God has done, now that the church knows what God has already achieved, my question now is, how will you respond? What, sh- what now will you do? I'm not talking about what you're going to do today. I'm not talking about what you're going to do on Tuesday during Christmas. I'm talking about how are you going to respond in your life to Jesus Christ, the one who always has your really permanent, eternal address in mind. Beloved, God did not do all of this and wrought salvation from start to finish for entertainment. For anyone to simply say, never mind, God did all of that so that you may believe, that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, and that in believing you may have eternal life. So the only thing you must do, the only thing you have to do, the only thing you ought to do, is believe in the Son of the Most High, and you will be saved. Here's a reality... If you could save yourself from the wrath of God, you would. If you could save yourself, you wouldn't be here right now. If you could save yourself, you wouldn't come into the house of God on a Sunday to hear a man preaching foolishness. No one can save themselves. No one else can save another human being. The only thing we trust and rely on is not in what we can do. It's in what God already did. Therefore, trust and believe in the Son of the Most High and follow him. Because nothing that a man can do will ever be better than what God already accomplished through his Son church. God bless you. And Merry Christmas. We do hope that you have been enriched and equipped by the preaching of Dr. Sadoffel. For more valuable resources, please visit wcsk.org. Until next time, peace be with you and to God be the glory forever.